Chapter Seventeen of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Seventeen. Dreary had been the house at St. Malo since Captain Antifer had left it, and the days and nights had been spent in anxiety by mother and daughter. Jules' empty room made all the house empty. At least, so thought Enogate. And then her uncle was not there, nor was her friend Tregamine. It was the twenty-ninth of April. Two months had elapsed since the steersman had left with three travelers on their adventurous campaign in quest of the treasure. How had the voyage ended? Where were they then? Had they attained their object? Mother, mother, said the girl, they will never come back again. Yes, my child, they will. Have confidence. They will come back, the old Breton would answer. But all the same, they would have done better not to have left us. Yes, murmured Enogate, and just as I was going to be his wife. Captain Antifer's departure had created an immense sensation in the town. People had been so accustomed to see him strolling, pipe in mouth, along the streets and on the ramparts. And then there was Gildas Tregomain walking at his side, but just a little behind him. His legs bowed, his loose coat always increases at the armpits his face always placid and beaming with kindness. And Jewel, the young captain, whose native town was as proud of him as he was of Enogate. Where had the three gone to? No one had any idea. They all knew that the steersmen had taken them to Port Said, but only Enogate and Nanon were aware that they were going down the Red Sea to venture into the northern boundaries of the Indian Ocean. Antifer had wisely kept his secret for he did not want Ben Omar to get wind of the position of the famous island. But if he had not let them know where he had gone, he had been too loquacious, too exuberant, too communicative with regard to his plans. At St. Malo, as at St. Servan and Dinard, everybody knew the story of Kamalik Pasha, and how Thomas Antifer had received a letter, and how the messenger had arrived, and how the longitude and latitude had given the position of an island containing millions of treasure. Millions of millions, according to those who knew best. With what impatience they did not await the news of the discovery, and the return of the captain, transformed into a nabob, bringing into the port a cargo of diamonds and precious stones. Enogate did not ask for so much as this. If her betrothed, her uncle, her friend, returned even with empty pockets, she would be satisfied. She would give thanks to God, and her deep distress would change into gladness. She had not been without hearing from Jewel. A first letter, dated from Suez, had informed her of the details of the voyage since their separation, and mentioned how nervous her uncle was becoming, and how Ben Omar and his clerk had been welcomed. A second letter, dated from Muscat, narrated the incidents of the voyage across the Indian Ocean to the capital of the Sultanate, and told her in what state of excitement, bordering on madness, Captain Antifer then was, and how they had decided to push on to Sohar. And again and again did she read these letters, which did not confine themselves to relating the impressions of the voyage, or reporting her uncle's excited state, but expressed all the annoyance of her betrothed at being separated from her on the eve of their marriage, at being so far away from her, and told of his hope of an early return, to gain her uncle's consent, even if they came back with their hands full of millions. Over and over again did Nanon and Enogate read these letters, to which they could not reply that consolation being denied them, and indulged in all the comments they suggested. They counted on their fingers the days, 
during which the absent ones would have to remain in those distant seas. They crossed out day after day on the almanac hanging on the wall. And after the receipt of the second letter, they abandoned themselves to the hope that the second half of the voyage would be devoted to the return. A third letter arrived on the 29th of April, about two months after Jules' departure. Seeing that it bore the postmark of Tunis, Enogate felt her heart beat with happiness. The travelers, then, had left Muscat. They returned to European seas. They were nearing France. In three days they might be at Marseille. Three days at the outside, and to reach St. Malo by express, twenty-six hours. Mother and daughter were seated in one of the rooms of the ground floor, after shutting the door on the postman. No one could disturb them. They could give free vent to their feelings. As soon as they had wiped away the tears that rose in their eyes, Enogate opened the envelope, drew forth the letter, and read in a loud voice, pausing between each sentence for it to be understood, as follows. La Goulet, Regency of Tunis, 22nd April, 1862. My dear Enogate, I embrace you and your mother first of all, then for yourself, then for myself. But we are far away from one another, and when this interminable voyage will end, I know not. I have already written twice to you, and you should have had my letters. This is the third, more important than the others. In the first place, because it will tell you that the treasure business has had an unexpected change come over it, much to my uncle's annoyance. Enigate uttered a little cry of joy, and clapping her hands, exclaimed, They have found nothing, mother, and I shall not have to marry a prince. Go on, replied Ninon. Enogate finished the sentence which she had interrupted. And also because I am sorry to have to tell you that we are obliged to continue our search much further away. The letter shook between Enogate's fingers. Search further away, she murmured. They are not coming back, mother. They are not coming back. Courage, my daughter, and go on, said Anon. Enogate, with her lovely eyes full of tears, resumed the reading of the letter. Jewel briefly related what had happened on the island of the Gulf of Oman, how instead of the treasure they found a document, and this document the mention of a new longitude. Then Jewel added, Judge, my dear Enogate, of my uncle's disappointment, of the rage he was in, and also of my disgust. Not that we have not taken possession of the treasure, but that our departure for St. Malo was further delayed. I thought my heart would have broken. Enogate had much trouble in restraining the beatings of her own and by her own feelings understood what Jewel had had to suffer. Poor Jewel, she murmured. And poor you, murmured Anon. Go on. Enogate continued, in a voice changed by emotion. In fact, this confounded longitude Cambalic Pasha requested us to bring to the knowledge of a certain Zambuco, a banker at Tunis, who was in possession of a certain latitude. Evidently, it is in another island that the treasure has been buried. Probably the Pasha had also contracted a debt of gratitude toward this personage, who had formerly helped him, as had Grandfather Antifer. The legacy has to be shared between two legatees, which reduces the share of each to a half. And on this account arose the extravagant anger you may imagine. Not four millions, but two. Well, I shall be only too pleased if those to whom the generous Egyptian owed debts of gratitude become so numerous. That so little comes to uncle and you have nothing to say against our marriage. Enogate continued. When our uncle read a document, he was so astounded that the figures of the new longitude and the address of him with whom he had to communicate for discovering the position of the island almost escaped him. 
Fortunately, he restrained himself in time. Our friend, Tregomaine, with whom I often spoke about you, my dear enemy, accomplished a most remarkable grimace when he learned that he had to go in search of a second island. My poor jewel, he said, is this Pasho Pashi Pasha having a lark with us? Is he going to send us to the world's end? Will it be at the world's end? That is what we want to know at the moment of writing. In fact, if our uncle has kept from us the information contained in the document, it is because he mistrusts Ben Omar. Ever since his rascal endeavored to get the secret out of him at St. Malo, he has held him in suspicion. Perhaps he has not been wrong, for as far as I am concerned, his clerk, Nazim, seems to be as doubtful. I do not like this Nazim, neither does Tregomaine. I can assure you that our notary, Kalok, would not have him in his office. I am convinced that if he or Ben Omar knew the address of the Sambuco, they would endeavor to be before us. But Uncle has not breathed a word. Ben Omar and Nazim do not even know that we are going to Tunis, and in leaving Muscat, we were asking where the Pasha's humor is going to send us next. Enogate stopped for a moment. Jewel then related to the incidents which had marked the return, the departure from the island, the obvious disappointment of the interpreter, Salik, at finding the stranger's return with empty hands, confirming him in his opinion that there was something more in the wind than a mere tourist trip. Then the wearisome return by caravan to Muscat, and waiting there during two days for the mailboat from Bombay. And, continued Jewel, if I did not write to you a second time from Muscat, it was because I hoped to have something to tell you. But all I can say even now is that we were returning to Suez, and thence going out to Tunis. Enogate stopped reading and looked at Nanan, who shook her head and muttered, It is to be hoped they are not going to the end of the world. There is everything to be afraid of amongst these infidels. The excellent woman spoke of these Orientals as he spoke of them in the days of the Crusades, and with the scruples of the pious Breton, the millions coming from such a source had an evil odor. But let her express such ideas before Captain Antifer. Jewel then gave an account of the voyage from Muscat to Suez, the crossing of the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea, Ben Omar sick beyond all recognition. So much the better, said Danan. And during the whole voyage, Antifer had not said a word. I do not know, dear Enigate, what will happen if Uncle is deceived in his hopes. Or rather, I know too well. He will go mad. Who would have believed that of a man so wise in his conduct, so modest in his tastes? The prospect of being a millionaire. But how many heads would be able to resist it? Yes, we too, of course. That's because our life is centered in our hearts. From Suez we reached Port Said, where we had to wait for the departure of a trading steamer for Tunis where lives this banker Zambuco, to whom Uncle has to communicate this exasperating document. But when the latitude of the one and the longitude of the other have determined the position of the new island, where are we to look for it? That is the question, and in my opinion, it is a serious one, for on it depends our return to France, and you. Enogate let fall the letter, which her mother picked up. She could read no more. She saw the absent ones carried thousands of leagues away, exposed to great perils in terrible countries, perhaps never returning at all. And this cry escaped her. Oh, uncle, uncle, what misery you bring to those you love so much. Forgive him, my daughter, replied Nanon, and pray God to protect him. There were a few minutes of silence during which the women united in the same prayer. Then Enogate resumed. We left Port Said on the 16th of April. We were bound direct for Tunis, at first, we kept near the Egyptian coast, and what a look Ben Omar gave us 
as we sighted the harbor of Alexandria. I thought he would have gone ashore and resigned all claim to his commission. But his clerk intervened, and in their language, of which we did not understand a word, he made it listen to reason. Somewhat roughly, it seemed to me. It is clear that Ben Omar is in fear of this Nazim, and I am wondering if this Egyptian is really the man he says he is. He is so much like a bandit. Whoever he may be, I'm going to keep a good watch on him. Leaving Alexandria behind, we made for Cape Bon, leaving to the south the gulfs of Tripoli and Gabes. Then the wild slopes of the Tunisian mountains appeared on the horizon, with the abandoned fortresses on their crests, and one or two marabouts between the curtains of verdure. In the evening of the 21st of April, we reached the roadstead of Tunis. The next day our vessel anchored before the moles of La Goulet. My dear Edelgate, if at Tunis I am nearer to you than I was in the Gulf of Oman, I am still very far away, and who knows what ill fortune may not take us further. It is true that it is quite as miserable whether we are five leagues away or five thousand. But do not despair, and remember that whatever may be the end of the voyage, it cannot be very long. I have written this letter as we came along, so as to be able to post it as soon as we land at La Goulet. It will reach you in a few days. It will not tell you what I do not know, and what is so important for us to know, namely, where we are going to. But Uncle himself does not know that, and it can only be determined by an interchange of communications with the banker, whose rest we have probably come to trouble. For when he hears of the enormous legacy, the half of which belongs to him, Zambuca will certainly form one of the party, and become probably as excited as Uncle is. As soon as I ascertain the situation of island number two, I will let you know. It is probable that a fourth letter will succeed the third at a few days' interval. As for the present, it carries with it, for both you and your mother, Tregomain's kind regards and my love, and also Uncle's, although he seems to have lost all remembrance of St. Malo, and of the old house, and of those who live in it. Dearest Anogate, I send you all my love, as I know you send me yours, although I cannot have a letter from you. Believe me, for life, your faithful and affectionate Jewel Antifer. End of chapter 17